Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, April 8. I'm Tom Tilley and today we're going to brief you on cyber attacks. If Australian organisations are being attacked by Russian and Chinese hackers, how should we respond? Should our only response be defensive? You don't want to be pushed around, but at the same time, you can never really know what the other side's capabilities are. So how do you stand up to a cyber bully on a global scale? That is our briefing topic in just a moment. First, Jan Fran is here with the news that nobody wanted. Yeah, we are starting with some slightly concerning vaccine news out of the UK. Uh, Blood clot fears have caused Britain's drug regulator to recommend that people under 30 don't get the AstraZeneca vaccine. Adults who are aged 18 to 29 years old who do not have an underlying health condition that puts them at higher risk from serious COVID-19 disease should be offered an alternative COVID-19 vaccine. That's the head of Britain's Joint Select Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, Professor Wei Shen Lim there. So here are the numbers. Uh, Out of 20 million doses in the UK of the AstraZeneca vaccine, there's been 79 cases of rare blood clots. So that's about four out of every one million doses. 19 of those 79 people with blood clots have died. Three of those were under 30. So with 19 deaths, that's about one death per one million doses. Yeah. Now we should say that the UK's drug regulator says that there's not conclusive proof that the AstraZeneca vaccine has caused these blood clots, but they did say that the link was getting firmer. So no doubt there are some um, boffins really wanting to get to the bottom of that one. Yeah, ours are too. Brendan Murphy, the Secretary of the Health Department, said Australia's drug regulator, the TGA, is also looking into this. We are taking this matter very seriously at the moment, and that's why we're looking at their data to see whether this is a real problem and whether we need to do anything about it. Yeah, it's a pretty concerning development, isn't it, Jan? Yeah, it is. And I sort of have to keep reminding myself in all of this that we are doing this for the first time as a globe. I mean, it's it's uncharted territory, right? So to do it on this scale at this speed. Exactly. Mm. Um, and I think that we're just going to keep learning things about vaccines and the administration of vaccines as we go along. And it might mean that we have to change strategies and, and be really flexible here um, and also just learn some unsavoury things that we might not want to hear but then might influence the way that we administer stuff in the future. Yeah, so you have to make hard decisions about risk. So for older people over 75, the the risks of uh, getting COVID and the impact of it are are way worse than younger people. So uh, for people over 75 in the UK, one in eight have died after they've gotten COVID. For younger people, the risks of COVID are way lower. So therefore, the trade-off with the risk of the vaccine is a completely different calculation. Yeah, you do have to bear in mind as well that the UK, I mean, COVID numbers in the UK are significantly higher than what they are here in Australia. And they've also got a, a strain there that's a lot more infectious as well. I think though authorities, particularly European authorities, are still of the mentality that the benefits of getting this vaccine to as many people as possible far outweigh the risks. Yeah, but in the UK, they're saying that's true for everyone except under 30. So um, be really interesting to see what the developments are as the day progresses today. I think a lot of people will be responding to this. Be interesting to see what our leaders say. And speaking of, uh, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has denied any suggestions that he's criticised the European Union as the international vaccine stout continues. Any suggestion that uh, I in any way made any criticism of the European Union yesterday would be completely incorrect. I simply stated a fact that 3.1 million of the contracted vaccines did not turn up in Australia. Sounds like a criticism to me. 
Yeah, it also sounds a bit like a case of we said, they said, because the European Union yesterday completely denied the accusations that it had stopped 3 million vaccine doses from being shipped to Australia, saying that it had only blocked 250 doses since January and they're the doses that that we've known about. So who's not telling the truth? (laughs) Well, then he's pushed back on them after their response. So it's gone back several times and, and then he said... Oh, if you're not blocking them, please send them. Yeah, well, I mean, the government said that they'd ordered 3.8 million doses of the AstraZeneca jab, right, but that they'd only received 700,000. And ScoMo did say that he'd write to European authorities and to AstraZeneca to basically seek release of more doses that he said Australia had arranged to receive. But the government's considering getting doses from elsewhere as well. If that doesn't occur, then we have been working with a number of other partners around the world. Yeah, very keen to see how these other partnerships have been going. Um, You know, AstraZeneca's having these problems in Europe, plus our local production is nowhere near up to the Mm. level we hoped it would be. Mm. Now, nine newspapers are reporting that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is the most likely next candidate there. But, yeah, there's there's really no telling when we're going to receive the vaccines that we've ordered from AstraZeneca, including the extra 1 million doses that we ordered to send to PNG. Like, who knows when that's going to happen or even if that'll happen. What's interesting is that New South Wales has decided to open a mass vaccination mm. centre at Olympic Park, which was the, um, for non-New South Welsh people, is the site of the... Um, the Olympics, so it's got a big stadium and lots of facilities there because they want to be able to administer 60,000 doses a week. But who knows whether the supply will be there. And Federal Minister Peter Dutton is coming good on his threat to go after people on Twitter um, who he says have defamed him. Yeah, in late March, uh, Green Senator Larissa Waters was forced to make an apology for false comments posted on Twitter. So she made her comments after Peter Dutton said that the scandal involving former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins was a he said, she said situation. Yeah, so he's gone after a federal politician. That happens from time to time. But what's new here is that he's also gone after just a regular person who's been slamming him on Twitter, according to The Guardian. Um, they've described this person as an unemployed random user, not a public figure, and they've received a legal letter from Dutton's office demanding they delete tweets and issue an apology. So um, that sends a pretty strong message to people out there who think maybe they can get away with mm. just slamming government ministers on Twitter. And and he did say publicly in late March that he had had enough of the abuse that he copped on Twitter and that he was going to go mm. after people and, and not allow himself to be defamed on that platform. Um, But I guess it feeds into a much broader conversation around how to regulate places like Twitter and whether you can, because there's just, there's so many users on that platform. So many of them are anonymous. Do you go after every single one of them? Um, There was a a report that was taped, a parliamentary report, sorry, last week that suggested that you would have to present 100 points of identification if you wanted to start a new social media account or maintain your current social media account. So the idea was that if you had your ID up there, it would stop people from Mm. abusing other people because they've got their name and their faces to their profile, which I think is an interesting suggestion. I don't know if it'll necessarily work. There's not really any evidence to show that if your name and your face is attached to your profile, you'd be less abusive. I think if more of them end up in court getting sued, that might make a difference. Yeah. Well, there you go. Peter Dutton's going to have to go after every single anonymous person with an egg profile pic on Twitter. Have you gone through your old tweets? Anything you worried about there? Uh, 
You know what? I might do that after the show. (laughs) (laughs) And a National Women's Safety Summit is said to be held on July 29 and 30 this year. Um, Here's the Federal Minister for Women's Safety, Anne Rushton. We need to make sure that we move from just reducing violence against women and their children to ending violence against women and their children. So this comes as a Sydney coroner's report found the death of two children could have been prevented. Um, This was a very high-profile case that happened back in 2018. Jack and Jennifer Edwards were killed by their father, John. The New South Wales coroner, Teresa O'Sullivan, found that the deaths were, quote-unquote, completely preventable. The court also heard John Edwards had stalked and harassed five ex-partners and three of his children, and they found authorities continually failed the Edwards children and their mother, Olga. And this had echoes of Rosie Batty's situation. There seems to be overwhelmingly a push for children, no matter whether their parent is abusive and violent, that it is in the child's best interests to have an ongoing relationship with the parent, even against their will. So that's Rosie Batty, the former Australian of the Year, speaking to the ABC 730 program last night. And there are, I think, massive questions here over why this man was granted a gun licence, given that he had a string of complaints of domestic violence and AVOs against his name. And LA police say Tiger Woods was driving close to double the speed limit when he crashed in February. Yeah, so the 45-year-old had to be cut from the car by firefighters and paramedics using the jaws of life, which are sort of these hydraulic rescue tools. Yeah, and so this information from the police said he was doing about 140 k's an hour when the speed limit was around 70 k's an hour. Yeah, and he flipped several times during the accident, which happened in the state of California. Now, he was released from hospital earlier this month after sustaining a number of serious injuries. All right, Jam, we'll catch you tomorrow. Annika Smethurst is joining us as we look at how to respond to cyberbullying on a global scale. The Sunday before last, Channel 9 was taken off air because of a hack. That cyber attack has impacted our ability to go live to to air on uh, the Today Show this morning. So a lot of our Today Show, Weekend Today Show fans were unfortunately unable to to see that show. That's Nine CEO Mike Sneesby. It's been suggested that Russian hackers were responsible for that attack. Here's Paul Toomey. He's a cybersecurity expert and former government advisor. There's about 30 cyber gangs working in Russia. Uh, they do about $2 billion worth of business every year out of these sort of, you know, these type, types of attacks. Last year in June, there was another big cyber attack, this time on government agencies. And on that occasion, the finger was pointed at China. There is absolutely no doubt that um, Australia has been subject to a massive cyber attack from China. That was Peter Jennings, director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. It raises a big question, which we're going to answer right here on today's briefing. Is Australia fighting back? Are we launching similar hacking attacks on overseas targets or are we only playing a defensive strategy? And also, I guess, Annika, what what is the right thing to be doing in this escalating cyber war? It's hard to know, isn't it, Tom? If somebody bombed us, we'd know exactly what to do. Mm. But this sort of online warfare is pretty difficult. Dr. Sulet Dreyfus is a lecturer in the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. Sulet, thanks for joining us. Is Australia, you know, whether it's our government or our citizens or even Australian criminals, are we, are we out there hacking other countries or are we just copying it from other actors in countries like China and Russia? 
We don't know. And part of the reason we don't know is because uh, cyber attacks, cyber warfare is different from traditional attacks. You know, usually you know who the enemy is when it's coming over the hill, even if you don't know necessarily when they're going to attack or how they're going to attack. A lot of countries do have tiger teams uh, and they are engaged in both offensive and defensive cyber roles. And so that might be attacking another country's um, systems, particularly in retaliation for attacks on their own. But it's not public whether Australia has or uses that capability. We might not know exactly what they do, but we do know who does it. A lot of these sort of, I guess, cyber spies are housed in the Australian Signals Directorate, which is one of our sort of six spy agencies. So what do we know about what they're engaging in. Increasingly, the government are saying that, you know, this sort of warfare is growing online. So what do they do all day? A significant amount of what they would do would be uh, defensive capability. So when Australia gets hit by a major cyber attack, then they'd be actually trying to go in and analyse how far is it reaching? Is it hitting a particular um, industry? Does it look like it's a state actor behind it? Even if they know or have a very strong sense that it's a particular country, they may not be saying so publicly. So you may recall last year in June, the prime minister was out there saying that the Australian government and a set of institutions were being targeted by a really sophisticated, ongoing state-based cyber attack. Now, he didn't say who that was from, but you can be sure that ASD and our our electronic uh, spy agencies were on top of that. There is very much that sense of being forensic and uh, and picking apart both what the attack is and who might be behind it to understand Australia's defensive um, position and also a longer-term approach to what do we need to do to actually make sure it doesn't happen again. What's the right thing to do? Should we be out there attacking these other countries or should we play by the rules and only... Um, use defensive strategies in this cyber war that's going on? If you're pretty sure you could attribute serious attacks, attacks like the attack that Mm. happened in the middle of last year, then probably both sides know who's done it, even if neither is saying. And you have to make a judgment call. Are you going to sit there and take it? It depends a little bit on what other things you have riding on it, how close your relationship is, you know, how strong your defenses are. Because if you escalate, there's a risk that attacks that may be seen as either a non-attributed slap in the face or otherwise a nanny nanny, we could do this if we wanted to, but we haven't, could jump over the fence to actually taking down electricity systems, water systems, other essential services. How concerning was that attack on nine? Oh, I think the attack on nine was, was, was very concerning. So so when we think about essential services, we usually think about, you know, gas, electricity, water, um, uh, you know, making sure that traffic lights don't go out at intersections. And those are. But I think you also need to consider news an essential service because we all depend on it every day. Farmers depend on news about the weather for their crops. We depend on news for our everyday life and our functioning in society and to know whether or not there's been an attack. If you can't access the news, how will you know? So I think that it was extremely concerning. 
Sula, I want to pick up on something you said there. You spoke about state-based actors. And this is something that I noticed when I was working in Canberra when there was an attack that the government didn't want to name who might be behind it, but they were happy for the media to do it. I wanted to know what the motive is for that. Is it because we don't know, uh, I guess, the links to the government? So you might know that a hack came from Russia or China, but you don't know whether that was necessarily, uh, I guess, sanctioned by the government or whether that was in the case of, say, terrorism, uh, somebody who's gone out and, and done an attack. The risk with having attributing an attack is twofold. The first is that uh, often you can't know 100% for sure. You can be pretty sure you can analyze malware code and look at pieces of it and see if it bears a resemblance to other known code that's out there, for example, you know, in, in the malware environment and say, oh, this looks like um, malware that was released by North Korea, you know, a year ago and used in a pretty sure we think attack by North Korea on a country. And therefore you could try and say, oh, we think that's from North Korea. But it's it's hard to know for sure. And also there can be false information included in that to try and point the risk to another country. You don't want to get that wrong if you're accusing a country of attacking you because it's a pretty big accusation for a government to make. The second risk with attribution is that you will have to act on that. Do you sit by once you're being attacked and you called out the attacker and just say, well, we're going to turn the other cheek? And that's difficult if your attacker is a major trading partner, is bigger and more powerful than you are, you know, has got other realms of influence over you that you can't necessarily control. On the flip side, I think it is important for people to know what is going on in their environment. And if the country is perpetually getting slammed by external attacks where the identity really is known, then um, some openness with the population makes sense so that people understand how serious it is and they also understand that they need to take action to defend themselves. Is there any option now to sit back and hope that this isn't the future of warfare or do we have only one option and that's to engage? If you're saying, you know, is it a great idea for a country to go out and become, you know, the attack vector of the cyberspace, I think a degree of conservatism is is a smart move. I mean, you really, you don't want to be pushed around, but at the same time, you can never really know what the other side's capabilities are if they're extremely sophisticated, right? You just don't know what they've got in their arsenal. It's a difficult decision to make for a country. And once you escalate, you can expect that if you're the one who's being attacked, you know, you may face more attacks um, and more sophisticated attacks. That was Dr. Sulet Dreyfus. And Annika, I think she made a really good point in saying that if we started attacking other countries, that could escalate the war and who knows what could happen next. So that would be probably a pretty crazy strategy. Yeah, and when you compare it to, say, invading someone, which is something we don't do, or, you know, um, bombing different countries, we definitely don't do that. But also, it seems weird that we just sit here and let it happen to us, Tom, especially when this area is really going to be what takes off in the future of warfare. It's going to be online. 
Yeah, but we, we do have government agencies working really hard on cybersecurity, so I guess the hope is that they're doing everything they can to enact a defensive strategy that's as strong and as smart as possible. Tomorrow in the briefing, how can the federal government win back the female vote? Listener.